Every business, every investor, every consumer wants to know the future of California's economy, and they all look to reliable forecasts to determine what to do next. But no such prediction is guaranteed. Forecasters have no choice but to hedge by citing uncertainties. Now the year 2020 may go down in history as the age of uncertainties. Hello again, I'm Armin Alney, and this is How the World Works, a podcast from the UCLA Anderson School of Management. Jerry Nicholsberg founded his own consulting firm, Deep Blue Economics. He's recognized internationally as a student of management and labor and monetary economics. He joined UCLA Anderson in 2006, and he's headed the school's highly regarded forecast since 2017. Jerry Nicholsberg, welcome aboard. Hi, Warren. A pleasure to be here. Well, pleasure to have you. And speaking of uncertainties, when we set up this podcast, Speaker Pelosi and Secretary Mnuchin were talking about another relief package. But literally moments before we started recording, President Trump said, never mind. He ordered Mnuchin to pull out and promised a major stimulus bill, as he put it, right after I win the November election. Now, how's that for uncertainty? You know, when I heard that, I was thinking, Sometime in the future, people are going to start saying, that's so 2020 to mean it's so unpredictable. So unpredictable. So what does that mean to somebody like yourself uh, who is trying to make predictions? So with that kind of uncertainty, what you have to do is make a few assumptions. You need to make those assumptions explicit so everyone knows what they are. And then derive a forecast, and from that forecast then provides one with a base. And then you look at how the world unfolds, what assumptions are almost correct, what assumptions are incorrect, and you can use those to modify your view of the world as additional data, additional information comes in. So let me give you an example. In our latest forecast, which we released last week, and this speaks to exactly what you were saying about how quickly things change. Uh, we have a fourth quarter 2020 stimulus package, not as large as the Democrats have uh, proposed. In that forecast, the assumption that that is passed and the stimulus gets into the economy in the fourth quarter, so that is October, November, December of this year, uh, now it looks like that's not going to happen. And with that not happening, from our baseline, you would take the growth in employment and income down to a lower number. Now, we only have in that baseline a 1.2% growth in the U.S. economy in the fourth quarter. So um, uh, that's not very far from zero. And so this is an important development in terms of uh, where we are when we get to the end of this year. Let's just back up a bit. Apparently, Nancy Pelosi was on a conference call with other Democrats when she got the news. I mean, there was no warning to anybody. This just came out of the White House and apparently uh, strictly from the president. I don't know if even know or I don't think anybody knows as yet if Mnuchin was told in advance. Now, the stock market dropped right away. How will that change your predictions? Typically, the stock market does not drive the economy. The stock market is reflective of the investor's view of the future value of companies. And uh, the stock market dropping 
means that their expectation is that the economy is going to be weaker in the near term. Although I think uh, investors still think, given the level of of, uh, equity prices right now, that in the longer term, many companies are going to do just fine. But the near term is uh, going to be a bit rocky. One of the things that the president said in his tweets uh, was, our economy is doing very well. How do you take that statement? And do the president's utterances about the economy make a difference? Let me take the second question first. And the answer is yes, if they indicate a change in policy. So his utterances usually over the Twitter platform with respect to the ongoing trade war with China, that does make a difference because that's a signal as to what instructions he's giving to the negotiating team. I'm not sure that many of these today, since uh, he is still apparently fairly ill and on medication, are going to make a lot of difference in terms of people's expectations. However, the one that we were just talking about clearly does. What about people's assessment, though, of the president? And when you say that he is not only ill, but also on uh, medication, uh, does that, do you think, suggest that there might be a failure of confidence on the ground that maybe the president uh, isn't up to everything he might be. Uh, The fact that uh, he is ill, you know, even though the doctors are saying that he doesn't have any manifest symptoms, but uh, as far as we know, he's still on medication. And uh, this awful disease does last more than four days. The fact that he is ill and on medication increases the uncertainty about uh, how the White House, how the administration will be dealing with problems as they come up over the coming week or over the coming months. So that increased uncertainty does have an impact on the economy. For example, if you are a business and you are thinking of making an investment because you're in manufacturing and your business has been growing over the last few months, as many manufacturing establishments have, Uh, And so you want to make an investment to increase your productive capability. You don't have to worry about interest rates going up. They're going to stay near zero. With this uncertainty, that is going to make you reconsider and think, well, you know, I can just wait a few weeks or a few months and see how the economy plays out before I make that investment. So that's a drawdown in the demand for goods and services that affects output, it affects employment. That when you have the president in a situation where he is, whatever he says, uh, it's going to have a deleterious effect on the economy. I think that's exactly right, that um, that in order to eliminate that, one has to propose a plan as to how the government is going to be run during the period of convalescence. And, uh, and you know, what policies are, are going to be followed and who is going to be implementing them. And we don't have that. How important uh, would it mean to you and, uh, and to people who are trying to make decisions about the economy to know that there either had or had not been a mechanism for the transference of power uh, to make sure that somebody's running the country? So that's... An excellent question. I'm not sure that I have a good answer. So the 25th Amendment provides a mechanism for the temporary replacement 
uh, or the permanent replacement of a sitting president uh, were they to become incapacitated. The only times that it has been used, I think it's only been used once, but external to that, it was used two other times uh, during the George W. Bush administration. It was used once under the Reagan administration. And that was for a temporary transfer of power while the sitting president was undergoing surgical procedure. You know, given the fact that our current president went to the hospital, was on uh, fairly aggressive drugs, at least that's what's reported, and he did not do that temporary transfer of power, you know, it leads you to think that this is not going to happen going forward unless people external to the president exercise the right that they have under the 25th Amendment to impose that. Uh, We haven't seen anything to suggest that's going to happen. Well, let's talk a little bit about the specifics involved uh, when you talk about the possibility that there might have been a stimulus that the Democrats and the uh, Secretary of the Treasury were negotiating. What are some of the major things that you believe that were being contemplated that would have made a big difference? One aspect of the stimulus package that would make a real difference, though we concluded that would probably not be in the $1 trillion package that we assumed was going to happen in the fourth quarter and that we put in our forecast, is aid to state and local governments. So state and local governments just began their new fiscal year in July, and uh, you didn't see a lot of contraction in employment or in spending in the earlier part of this year when the recession started because they were working off a past budget and past tax revenues. But now that hits full force, and we're expecting through this year a contraction in employment in state and local government, a fairly sizable contraction, a stimulus package that would have aided them so that they do not have to lay off workers uh, certainly would have helped put a floor underneath the economy and helped move us along with economic growth. So what we can look at then is a reduction in services. I think that's correct. Another thing that I might point out about stimulus packages is when we receive a $1,200 check or whatever it is from the federal government as part of a stimulus package, uh, we don't uh, say woohoo and go out and spend it right away or spend it in the next two months. All of the empirical evidence uh, suggests that we look at that as a nest egg. And we might spend some of it, particularly if we're uh, less affluent and it helps ease the burden with uh, with rent and food purchases. But the majority of that stimulus, the direct transfer to individuals, is put into savings or paying down debt uh, as a cushion against future bad economic times. So that kind of direct transfer, while it's helpful, uh, is uh, you, you don't get a, a one-for-one bank for the buck. It's important because it smooths out things as you go across the what some people are calling the cliff of the transfers expiring. Well, people have put away in one study two-thirds of that stimulus check. So there's still funds there from that. What do you understand to be the rationale of Republicans that uh, Steve Mnuchin has to deal with for not increasing the assistance to state and local governments? I can only tell you what I read. So I don't really know the rationale that they are expressing 
to each other. However, going into this recession, we had trillion-dollar deficits in the federal budget. Those trillion-dollar deficits were a direct manifestation of the 2017 tax cuts. And then you add the stimulus packages that we have just seen, and those deficits go up into the multi-trillion dollars. So the reticence is that the federal government is running these huge deficits and can't afford to run the huge deficits because they have to be paid off at some point in time. Now, the evidence from the data with regard to running deficits during the recession and the early part of a recovery is that that's not so, but I think that is philosophically where they're at. Now, when you made your forecast, uh, you didn't assume that there would be assistance to state and local governments. So let us presume again that that's not true in any case. What's happening to uh, civilian unemployment and, and will it be changed if there is no stimulus at all? So what we have is slow, relatively slow economic growth. We are crawling out of a deep hole. You have heard about the 28 to 30% growth in GDP and the millions of jobs that came back in the last quarter. That left us 4.5% below our previous peak in economic activity. And at the depths of the Great Recession, the very depths of the Great Recession, we were only 4% below the previous peak. So we're still in a big hole. And we have slow growth coming out of that and uh, and employment growth taking us all the way to the end of 2022, so possibly into 2023, until we get back to 2019 numbers in terms of the number of jobs. But of course, the labor force has had three years to grow. So we'll still be under GDP potential and under employment potential, and we'll have elevated rates of unemployment, certainly through the next two years, two and a half years, and uh, maybe into 2023 as well. So the president says, when I win, there's going to be a stimulus package, uh, and it's going to be uh, helpful to those people who need it most. If that were to come about, what would you regard as something that was helpful to those who need it most. So this recession has disproportionately hit low-income sectors, and those are leisure and hospitality, so that's accommodations, that's sporting events, restaurants and bars, tourism. It's hit brick-and-mortar retail very hard. It's hit other services and some aspects of healthcare and social services. These are all low-income sectors. So the vast numbers of unemployed are uh, folks who don't have a lot of reserves. They are uh, less affluent than most other Americans. And a stimulus package that would be most helpful, aside from the state and local that we just talked about, would be one that would address that problem in two ways. One is to help these folks get to the other side of the recession and, and the economy growing sufficiently to create jobs for them. And the second is in providing resources so that they have other options besides the sectors that they were working in. So that might mean job training, it might mean information, uh, whatever the resources might be. Those would be the most helpful. And you know, keep in mind that Stimulus that goes to middle-income Americans or high-income Americans is 
most likely not spent initially, transfers to those who are much less affluent, those get spent and into the economy much more rapidly. So that would be the kind of stimulus package uh, that I think would be most helpful in terms of speeding the recovery. You spoke of the Great Recession. I know one of the things that you've been concerned about is that uh, since that time, there has been an increase in the gap in the distribution of income. How serious is that? Whatever happens politically in Washington, whatever they decide to do uh, in terms of uh, having a stimulus or not. Sure. So thus far, we've been talking about kind of the near term, uh, the balance of this year, 2021 and 2022. Inequality is a longer term problem. And that's why sometimes it gets swept under the rug. You asked how serious is that? I think it's very serious. Inequality has been growing over the last decade. And if you look at what sectors are growing, they are high income sectors and what sectors are in the, uh, in the tank, as it were, those are low income sectors. And that's going to be the case as we go through the recovery. So income inequality, absent a policy intervention, is going to grow over the next decade. And what we know from history is that ever increasing income inequality has the potential for very bad outcomes on society, the kind of government one has, and uh, you know, and the future economic relationships. So I think it's an issue that absolutely needs to be addressed. What does that mean in terms of the increased automation of the society and the replacement of low-income workers with robots? Sure. Well, let's uh, you know think about that in maybe some concrete terms. One of the impacts of this recession is on restaurants. Customers have to feel safe. And so how do they do that? Uh, well, one way, you know, which we certainly enjoy here in California, is by moving their tables and chairs out on the street or in the sidewalk and having outdoor dining. And that's been done in other parts of the country. But I spent five years in Minnesota, and there's no way I would do outdoor dining in Minnesota in January, right? And so they are looking for new business models so that they can survive and grow and, and, and prosper. And, and one of the things that would make people feel safer if there was technology that allowed them to place their order, interact with a server, whether it's live or robotic, you know, without the server coming to the table. You know, you can think of tablets or uh, screens that are built into the table or, or kind of whatever, which are cleaned after every customer. That reduces the demand for that labor. So what do those people do? And this comes back to what I was saying about the stimulus package. Those jobs are gone forever. So those folks are going to have to find a new sector, a new kind of work to do. And, you know, it's not always obvious where that is. That's where information and support and training come in. So it might be in construction. It might be in robotics technicians. Uh, it might be in installation of solar panels. I don't know what it is. I'm just, uh, you know, throwing a few things out there. Uh, but it's not going to be in coming to the table and saying, hi, I'm Jerry. I'm taking care of you tonight. We started out talking about uncertainties, and obviously uh, the COVID pandemic uh, raises a host of uncertainties of its own, some of which you've just alluded to. What about the prospect of a vaccine, one presumably that people would actually 
have confidence in and agree to take. Are you able to factor that possibility into your forecast and say, well, here's what would happen if we had one, here's what would happen if we didn't? Or is that just too uncertain a factor to get your figures around? So the answer to that is yes and no. Looking at if we have a vaccine, then do folks trust the vaccine? What is the rate of production of of ampules of the vaccine? How long does it take for enough people to have it that the COVID pandemic is moderated significantly? Those are things that we really are not able to pin down in terms of time. What we have done, because we have to make some assumption about how the pandemic affects the economy in the coming couple of years, we've made this assumption. And mind you, this is an assumption. It's not a forecast. So we have the assumption that as we get into 2021 and beyond, that the pandemic, though it may affect economic activity, is not going to have a major effect on economic activity. That could be because of a vaccine that's acceptable. It could be because it's run its course. It could be because businesses have found new ways to operate so that people feel safe and are purchasing services again. Uh, So it could be any number of things. Uh, But what it's not is additional close-ups of the economy, and what it's not is a virulent return of the pandemic, as, for example, we saw in 2019 with the influenza pandemic that sort of abated at the end of 2018 and then came back really strongly in 2019. So we're assuming that doesn't happen. To be sure, if it does, if any of those bad events happen vis-a-vis the COVID-19 pathogen, our forecast is way too optimistic. President Trump, once again, has said that he will engineer a stimulus when he wins in November. What do you know about uh, Joe Biden's promises and his campaign assurances and the kind of impact it might have just because he has won and replaced the president that we have that uh, causes you to be either optimistic or not? Okay, so I'm going to say something that all of your listeners will laugh at. But let's take these candidates at face value, that they are going to do what they say they're going to do on the campaign trail. Then the stimulus package that Vice President Biden has proposed is significantly larger than that president has been talking about. And it is targeted towards those groups who are hurting more in this recession. So the uh, impact in terms of economic growth and employment will be higher under that stated package. But having said that, you know, we don't know what would get through Congress and we don't know the size of these packages. If it is all or majority of it is infrastructure, infrastructure is something that we need to invest in, then what you would see is that the funds work their way into the economy over four or five years and it won't have much impact at all. So, you know, we kind of need concrete proposals that look to have a reasonable chance of passing, you know, before we zero down into how that would affect growth rates and unemployment rates. If, in fact, there is a serious effort to uh, try to cope with uh, climate change, people talk about managing it and uh, mediating the impact of it rather than trying to turn it around, which seems to be impossible at this time. But does that have the prospect, particularly in California, of improving the economy? 
Warren, you always zero in on the really important questions, which is nice. And, and I think there are two decade-long uh, problems that we in the United States have to address. And we talked about inequality, and the second one is climate change. Climate change is happening. It's happening rapidly. It does mean that we are going to have to adjust the way we live, and that means investment. Uh, and for example, here in California, we have uh, folks who are living in low-lying coastal areas. Now, relative to Florida and South Carolina and New York, we're in good shape, but there are 2 million uh, Californians who live in these low-lying areas, and, and they're going to be affected by sea level rise. We also have more persistent droughts, more intense wildfires, more like Australia has been experiencing. And all of this is going to change the way we build, the way we live, where we live. So that's going to take investment, and that means uh, that over the next decade, you're going to see a shift in economic activity, at least not entirely, of course, but at the margin between consumption and investment as we try to adjust to uh, the realities of climate change as it plays out over the decade. It strikes me that you have an extraordinarily difficult job as head of the UCLA Anderson uh, economic forecast. And I'm just interested, is it possible to say at this point whether you can be either optimistic or pessimistic or uh, back to the very beginning? Are uncertainties just too great uh, at this point to be able to say one way or the other? So there are enormous uncertainties. And that means that the trajectory of the economy that we have in our forecast is just that baseline that I talked about. And, uh, you know, given the things that could happen and could happen with reasonable probability, we could veer away from that fairly significantly. And that kind of leads you to say that, you know, certainly over the next year or so, it's hard to be optimistic or pessimistic. You can be somewhat like a yo-yo. So some days it looks good and some days it uh, looks bad. As we look over the longer term, we're looking at a transformation of the U.S. economy. And transformations are always difficult, they're always painful. The outcome, and in particular the societal outcome, is never foretold. But if we get past that transformation, as we have in the Industrial Revolution and the Agricultural Revolution, with the same kinds of outcomes, that means that as we get to 2030 and beyond, there will be more jobs with higher pay and more leisure. But, you know, the uh, old saying that there's many a slip between the cup and the lip, it, it is definitely not foretold that that's what we're going to see. So let me ask you this, as the head of the uh, forecast, do you feel like a doctor who has a patient who's in trouble and uh, who may or may not be responding as you hope to the medication that you are providing, but it's your responsibility to uh, say something to that uh, patient that will uh, be important and provide some encouragement for the future. Do you feel like that? That's sort of a complex question. Let me say not like a doctor because we don't really have an influence over how the economy evolves, but more like the doctor's messenger or a messenger who's independent of the doctor, let me say, who looks at all the evidence and then goes to the patient and says, uh, you know, I don't know what the doctor told you, but here's the outcome that we see and the chance of various other outcomes. You know, we try very hard, and that's why we do our forecasts as a team, 
to make sure that we're not uh, just saying something happy to make people feel better or uh, sad to make them work harder or whatever, but rather that we're representing what the data says, what economics would tell us from the data about the trajectory of the economy, good or bad. And I have heard it said that uh, here in California, uh, by folks who have used our forecast on a regular basis over many years, that the reason why they do that is because we work very hard to keep our own politics out of it and really try and fairly represent what's happening in the economy. Jerry Nicholsberg, uh, speaking not just to our generation, but to uh, future generations as well. Uh, uh, heading the UCLA Anderson Economic Forecast, just fascinating to talk with you. And uh, thank you so much for being so candid about so many different things, uh, particularly in these times of extraordinary uncertainty. Uh, good luck with your job. And thanks a lot for being on our podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you.